What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. First up, we're going to talk about the Bills, new $1.4 billion stadium. Some new renderings came out, and I want to talk about the economics behind it, including how much taxpayers are paying and what they're giving up through some of the stadium features. Secondly, we're going to talk about Fanatics and their new deal with the NHL. But the NHL is really just one small part of what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Fanatics in totality how big the business is, and how they've done it. I think this is probably one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting company in sports today. It's a $30 billion business, and everyone can learn something from how these deals have been structured. And then thirdly, I want to talk about two of the biggest transactions going on in sports today. The first being Manchester United, and the second being the Washington Commanders. The New York Times put out a good article the other day talking about some of the pros and cons of each team and what buyers would be interested in. I want to run through that and explain where I stand on this issue about which team is not only more valuable, but long-term where some of that value sits for owners. But before we get into the episode, I have one quick favor to ask. As you guys have probably heard me say before, only about half of you are actually subscribed to my channel on Spotify or Apple following the podcast. So if you listen to this podcast, if you enjoy this podcast, if you have shared this podcast with any of your friends, continue to do that. I appreciate it so much. It is awesome. But also, please subscribe or follow the podcast. It helps me present the podcast in front of everyone that's already listened to it, and you guys will get updated on the latest episodes. So thank you so much, and let's get into this week's episode. All right, the first thing I want to talk about today is the Buffalo Bills' new $1.4 billion proposed stadium in Orchard Park. So this news is not new. It actually has been going on for at least a year now. The budget has already been decided and the, the stadium is moving forward. They've done a few different renderings that have been released now. And it looks like everything is full steam ahead that Buffalo is going to be getting a new stadium opening in 2026. So the team actually released new renderings themselves yesterday. The stadium is being done by an architectural firm called Populous. Populous has done a bunch of stadiums all over the world. I think they've actually done over 1,300 stadiums in 30-plus countries. So we've seen them. They can do the work. They did Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. They did Yankee Stadium. They did Allianz Field. They've done 10 to 15 different NFL stadiums. Chances are you've not only seen their work, but you've probably even been to one of their projects. Great firm. They do a lot of this stuff. They certainly can handle it. But I don't want to talk about them because I want to talk about the venue itself. So if you remember correctly, the stadium is going to cost about $1.4 billion. And the interesting part here is that $850 million of that $1.4 billion, so 60% of the total, is coming from public financing. Basically a fancy way of saying taxpayers are paying for the stadium. $600 million of that is coming from New York State, and $250 million of that is coming from Erie County. So $600 million is from the state which as you can imagine, people are upset about because why should someone in New York City or Long Island who's a Jets fan or a Giants fan pay for Buffalo Stadium? We'll get to that in a second. It's a little bit more complicated than just that, but $600 million is coming from the state. $250 million is coming from Erie County specifically. The owners of the Bills, the Pacuyos, are paying $350 million of that, and the NFL is doing a loan of $200 million. So owner financing counts for about 25%, the NFL is 15%, and public financing, when you combine the state and the county, is 60%. So this is interesting because I tweeted it out, and it seems to get some people riled up, is that the new stadium 
I mean, it looks cool. You know, it's it's open. It's brand new. It looks awesome. It's got the Bills colors. It's got a few different levels to it. It's going to have anywhere between like 60 and, and I think 65,000 seats. So it'll actually be a little bit smaller, but there'll be more luxury boxes, which is pretty much in tune with what everyone is doing today. I was in Barcelona a few weeks ago, and that was explicitly what they were saying was their stadium Camp No just doesn't have any luxury boxes, which is where people need to be if you want to meaningfully bring more revenue into your team and into your stadium. So Buffalo is focused on that. They're reducing the crowd from 72,000 to 60 to 65,000. They're going to be signing a 30-year lease to stay in the stadium. And again, it will open in 2026. So outside of the funding, the other interesting part here is that there is no roof Not only is it not a dome, but there's no retractable roof. So Buffalo will be open. And the thing I want to be careful about here is that I totally understand the culture of Bill's Mafia. Anyone that watches the NFL, anyone that has seen anything about Buffalo knows that their crowd is amazing. It's awesome. They get super into it. They're passionate. They're, by all accounts, very nice people. They have a great time. They love the outdoors. The snow is an advantage, right? When I went to a Miami Dolphins game last year, I guess two years ago at this point, the Giants played them down here in Miami. And it was so damn hot. It was literally like 120 degrees on field level. We sat in the sun and it couldn't have been hotter. We were sweating for like three, four hours straight. And the reason why I say that is because it was a distinct advantage for Miami. You've probably seen this online right now. When you look at Miami's field, sun comes down over the game at one o'clock. Their sideline, half the field basically is in the shade. The other half of the field is directly in the sun. And of course, that sun side is the away team sideline. So it's created this home field advantage of sorts for Miami, where it's not just the crowd, it's actually the, the weather, right? And the temperature. And Buffalo has a similar thing where they don't get it on one side of the field or the other, but the team, by all accounts, is used to playing in colder weather and can withstand that better and, and, and performs better in that weather. That's not always the case. They throw the ball a lot these days, so so it's been different over the last few years, but you get the point. So I totally understand that. But my problem is when you use $850 million of public financing, which by the way is the most ever, the previous most ever taxpayer money used for a stadium was $750 million in Las Vegas. And the reason why that's important is because Las Vegas has some very clear rules around how they're going to get that funding back. They implemented hotel taxes for tourists. So basically they raised everything and there's a very strict schedule based on math along the lines of how quickly they're going to get that money back. Buffalo has made some projections about kind of lease payments and alcohol and player salary taxes and all this other stuff. And they claim they're going to be able to make money on this too. But my point is, how do you get taxpayers to pay $850 million, the most ever, and you do not have the stadium indoors, right? I'm a purist. I get it. Outdoor football, whole deal. But there's so many things that go along with an indoor stadium these days, right? Let's talk about March Madness. The Final Four, you can't get that. The Super Bowl, you can't get that. Concerts during the winter, you can't get that. There's so many different things, conferences, events, whatever it is. I looked at some of the projections earlier today. And basically, give or take, if you look at some other stadiums of similar quality, kind of billion to multi-billion dollar stadiums that have been built over the last few years. And granted, Buffalo is a little bit different because it's not like some big metropolitan area, but still you get the point. They're probably giving up anywhere between like 30 to 50 events a year. And obviously that matters from like a money generation standpoint for taxpayers, but let's just talk about enjoyment, right? There's no concerts. There's, there's no Super Bowl, There's no March Madness, Final Four, et cetera. You miss all of that stuff. So if you're paying for the stadium through your taxes, I don't know. Maybe it makes sense to have a retractable roof or something along those lines where you're still able to host a bunch of these events, these marquee primetime events, 
and you still get to to relive some of that culture. It's just a, a point for me that seems a little bit out of left field for them not to consider, especially considering the weather and and how much these stadiums have done over the years to try to get some of these bigger events. I think the other thing about this is that Buffalo is the second or the third. I think it's the third poorest city in the United States. The median annual income is just over $20,000, and it's significantly lower than the national average, which I believe is thirty dollars to $35,000. The poverty rate is extremely high. While the stadium is in Orchard Park, which is technically right outside of Buffalo, I think everyone gets kind of where I'm going with this, right? That the taxpayer money, $850 million, albeit is a small portion of the government's budget in New York, probably less than 1%, I would have to imagine. It could probably be used for better things. Now, the flip side of this is that the NFL generates a lot of money. So if you just looked at the amount of money that is going to be generated through player salaries in the state, through state incomes, that's over a billion dollars over the next 30 years for the stadium. That's without counting anything from alcohol or gambling taxes or sales taxes or hotels or restaurants or anything of that nature. So there's a lot of money to be made. Generally speaking, these stadiums don't necessarily pay for themselves. If you look up any economic study, they all mostly agree these days that that's kind of been overblown over the last couple of decades. But at the end of the day, it's supply and demand. And if Buffalo wants an NFL team, there's only 32 of them. There are plenty of other cities in the United States and even abroad today that would want one. So they have to pay up. They have to get these stadiums built and hopefully taxpayers realize some benefit from that whether they go to the games or not we'll see hopefully it's a net positive for buffalo this episode is sponsored by sofi sofi is the all-in-one finance app helping you bank borrow invest and save sofi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition all in one app it's the single app you need to get your money right i'm a sofi member and i love it SoFi is legit, and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC, so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. All right, the next thing I want to talk about is Fanatics. So the big lead in here is that Fanatics announced the deal last week with the NHL, the National Hockey League. They're going to be their new on-ice uniform provider starting with the 2024-25 season. So basically, when you see an NHL player on ice, it will be a Fanatics branded uniform. It's the first time in Fanatics history that their logo will be on an official player uniform. Fanatics will manufacture the NHL uniforms in the same Canadian factory that has been used to make NHL uniforms for 30 plus years. So players shouldn't be expecting any difference in quality. And financial details haven't been disclosed, but Adidas was paying around, I think it was $70 million per year for the rights to the NHL. My guess is that number actually is lower for Fanatics, but there is an increase in kind of royalty agreements with their e-commerce piece. So the devil's in the details with these type of agreements. And the most obvious thing is that Fanatics basically runs sports e-commerce today. Every team, every league, whether it's NHL, NFL, NBA, MLB, MLS, Formula One, there's a bunch of colleges. They they own or operate 900 plus sports properties, the e-commerce stores for those. So they're a $31 billion company. They've grown tremendously, tremendously over the last few years. If you think about just valuation, let's talk about valuation. So the company was valued at $277 million in 2011. They grew to a $6.2 billion valuation in 2020. So almost a decade, they went from $277 million to $6.2 billion. 
big time growth there. That's no joke. $6.2 billion business is massive. But then since COVID, so 2020 to today, 2023, Fanatics is worth $31 billion, right? So $6.2 billion to $31 billion. They have exclusive agreements with all of the major leagues, basically all the big teams, all of that. So it's a massive, massive, massive business. This is another step in that. I think what really happened was Adidas wanted out of the business. Fanatics said, we'll take over. We're already kind of... Fanatics, for those that don't know, is already doing this with Major League Baseball. So you see the Nike emblem on Major League Baseball's jerseys, but Fanatics is the one making the jerseys. They bought Majestic, the company that used to make the jerseys. So Fanatics makes them. They just kept the same supplier, everything. They just make them now, and they put the Nike logo on it. So this is going to be no different. Now, with that said, I'm not naive to the fact that a lot of people just don't like Fanatics gear. If you order stuff off their website, sometimes it comes, sometimes it comes late, sometimes it's bad quality, sometimes it's good, right? Like it's just kind of hit or miss. And being in the sports business, I've seen a lot of different takes on this, right? Like people think it's it's just terrible. They think that Fanatics is in bed with a bunch of different leagues and that's why they're able to maintain their market share and the quality has degraded over time and the leagues are in trouble because no one's going to buy their stuff and so on and so forth. And I think there's nuance to this, right? Some of that's true. Maybe some of it's not. But I think more importantly, what we should be talking about is how Fanatics has done this. Because from a business perspective, it's been freaking genius. So Michael Rubin is the chairman of Fanatics. The company was actually started in the 1990s, 1995, by these two brothers named Alan and Mitch Traeger. They opened a retail storefront in a mall in Jacksonville, Florida. So I'm sure some of you have seen this. When you used to go in malls, there was Fanatic stores and you could buy it was uh, like a officially licensed merchandise and memorabilia from these teams and these leagues. So they had these agreements and they would go to malls and they would, you, you know, you could buy this stuff. Michael Rubin, at the time when these two other brothers were running Fanatics, it was originally called Football Fanatics. They later dropped football and just changed it to Fanatics. But Michael Rubin was running a company called GSI Commerce. And the easiest way to explain GSI Commerce is that the internet was coming around in the early 2000s. And Ruben basically went to all these different retailers that were doing really well in brick and mortar. Think about Toys R Us, Kmart, Timberland, Sports Authority, people like that, Ace Hardware, et cetera. And he started running their online store for them. So he, they, he went to them and he said, hey, you guys have no experience in e-commerce. They actually, a lot of times, weren't taking it that seriously. Michael Rubin said, I'll take it seriously for you guys. My company, GSI Commerce, will run it for you. That went really well over the over the, we'll call it like mid to late, early 2000s. And GSI Commerce was later bought by eBay. So eBay was trying to compete with a bunch of other players, including Amazon, which had recently started. And they bought GSI Commerce for $2.4 billion. Well, literally months before they bought GSI Commerce, Michael Rubin and GSI Commerce bought Fanatics. So they owned Fanatics at the time of the acquisition. They paid $277 million to buy Fanatics in 2011. And when eBay bought Ruben's company, GSI Commerce, they didn't want Fanatics, right? It was just seen as like an extra kind of piece of the business that was outside of the core and it didn't really do anything for what they were trying to accomplish. They really wanted the, the access and the relationships to those brick and mortar stores to onboard them into eBay to be able to compete with Amazon. It was called, uh, I think, eBay Enterprise or something like that. But they said, we don't want Fanatics. So Ruben bought Fanatics back including a couple other like smaller businesses, but Fanatics was the main play. And then he focused exclusively on sports over the last decade, and the company has blew up. And the reason he's been able to do this, when I talked about kind of like the business case study behind it, is because he did one thing really, 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 really well. He created win-win partnership 
with all of the leagues. So, for example, the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, MLS, and the players' unions across those leagues all own equity in Fanatics. So he went to them and he said, hey, give me the exclusive license to do your your merchandise and your memorabilia, et cetera. I'll give you equity or I'll allow you to invest in the company. And as this business grows, you'll not only realize the dollars up front from the sales of your goods, but then you'll realize money on the back end from the enterprise value growth of our business. So those leagues I just named, the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, MLS, and the unions, they own a stake in the business today that's worth $5 billion, right? Like how absurd is that? And they're not the only ones either. There's certainly some traditional firms like Fidelity and BlackRock and SoftBank, Silver Lake, Endeavor, et cetera, that own pieces of the business. But Rock Nation, Jay-Z, a few of these other people own parts of the business too. So Ruben has done an incredible job at creating that kind of win-win partnership with the leagues. He's given them equity in exchange for the rights. It's been amazing. So they built this monopoly of sorts. And what he's done now is he's expanded that. So he said, hey, we can become a platform. We have like 90 or 100 million customers at this point. They have 16 data points, I think is the average for each customer. So they have this unbelievable database. Now they're able to go market other stuff too. So what do they do? They want to build this platform that's adjacent to sports. And what, what else can you do outside of merchandise? You can certainly do collectibles and trading cards, stuff like that. And you can also definitely do sports betting and gambling. So that's exactly what they do. And I think another good example of this is actually that trading card business. When you think about trading cards specifically, Ruben and Fanatics started a trading card business in 2021. It's called Fanatics Trading Cards. And what they did was before they had anything, they had never produced a trading card in their life. Literally never, 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 never. And they went to the NFL, MLB, and NBA and their players unions, and they got the exclusive rights to be the official licensed trading card provider of those leagues. How do they do it? How do you think? They gave them equity in the parent company, and then they went and raised money based on those rights. So he literally came up with this idea. He went to the leagues and has a good relationship with them, clearly, and said, I will give you equity in this new entity for the rights. We've never produced a card. We have no idea what we're doing, basically, but we'll figure it out, and we'll do it. You have existing partners that are doing sales for you today, but we think we'll be better. Here's why. Those leagues agreed. And then he went out and raised money. He raised $350 million from a group of investors at a $10.4 billion valuation. And that valuation, $10.4 billion, again, was before they ever made a single card, did anything from a marketing perspective or any of that stuff. It was solely based off the value of those rights. And when you look at the value of that, the NFL, I, I think the cap table today is broken down in basically three pieces. Fanatics and Ruben own about 80% of that company, Fanatics Trading Cards. They gave 14 or 15% of the equity in that business to the league. So the NFL, MLB, NBA, and the unions own about 14 to 15%. And then like 3 to 4% is owned by the investment groups that gave them money. So the ones that gave them, I guess it's 3.5% at, we'll call it $10 billion valuation, $350 million. So. 3.5% is owned by those investors. So when you think about it in the stages of what happened here, he literally created a $10 billion business overnight without creating a single product. That's what happened. That is exactly what happened, actually. And then the most savage part of this entire thing is that he went back. So Tops, who was doing the MLB license at the time, was scheduled to go public at a $1.3 billion valuation. They were in the process of going public. 
when Fanatics stole the rights to Major League Baseball, their valuation crumbled because that was the main value behind it. They do some other stuff kind of like they actually have a candy business and they do some other things too that make some money in the digital space, but the valuation crumbled. Fanatics then came back with their $350 million that they raised at a $10 billion valuation and bought tops for $500 million, right? So they basically got the company that they're going to now use to create the cards at greater than a 50% discount. It was, a, it was valued at $1.3 billion. They took the rights away, created this, what we'll call basically a shell company, and then got the company for $500 million. Absolutely savage move by Fanatics and Michael Rubin. He brought in a number of other investors outside of that, and now they're doing the gambling and doing other things too. So they're trying to create this all-encompassing platform for sports fans. And again, not everyone loves their products. Not everyone thinks they're amazing, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I think from a business perspective, they're already one of the most powerful companies in sports. And I think if they aren't already, they will soon be the most powerful company in sports because they have a legitimate chance to control everything from merchandise to collectibles, to sports betting, to marketing, to advertising, to whatever it is, right? It's going to be your at game experience. It's going to be your at home experience. It's going to be your digital experience. It's going to be all of that. And Ruben has been very open about this, that he set a target. He wants to be a $100 billion company. So they're worth $30 billion today, excluding the other two businesses that they started. If you want to count those in, maybe we're at like 40 to 50, but you get the point. They have tremendous upside still to go, at least two to potentially three X more upside within the next decade. And I think they're going to do it. I don't even think that's that crazy. I mean, a hundred billion dollar business involved in sports is, is obviously sounds insane, but if anyone can do it, I think it's fanatics. I think they have some stuff to worry about when it comes to the quality of their goods, the customer service, et cetera. Sports fans are obviously not happy, but I think at the end of the day, they're building a legitimately tough business to crack. And I don't think anyone's going to have the ability to come in and do it because of the sole reason that they've aligned their interests so well with the sports leagues. All right, before we get to the third topic, here is our next sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24 seven and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's Marketplace now to enjoy this limited time offer. I'm a big fan of the platform, and I think you will be too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's golden, G-O-L-D-I-N.com. All right, the last thing I want to talk about today is the sale of two blue chip assets in the sports space. We're talking about Manchester United in the Premier League and the Washington Commanders of the NFL. So this is like a long going debate around the value of different sports teams. The most valuable sports team that we've seen in recent years from a sales perspective has been the Denver Broncos at $4.65 billion last year. Close behind that was Brooklyn Nets a few years ago at $3.3 billion. And Chelsea recently also sold for a little bit over $3 billion. Behind that would be the Mets at 2.4 and the Carolina Panthers at 2.2. So we haven't seen anything crack $5 billion yet, and the Denver Broncos were the first one to go in the fours. A couple teams in the threes and a few in the twos. So these are very, 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 very valuable teams. Both of them have reportedly been looking for offers within the $6 million to seven to even $8 million range. 
But more importantly, I want to talk about some of the pros and cons of this. So the New York Times had a good article the other day that was basically pointing out some of the differences between the two teams and the two leagues and how investors might look at them. And I want to expand on what they talked about a little bit, because I think it's a very interesting and nuanced topic around kind of where some of these investors not only see value, but the growth of these leagues might be in the meantime. And I want to lead it off by saying that personally, I think the NFL team is a better buy, but I do think that there's some compelling parts on the Manchester United side that could be really valuable also. So first and foremost, the difference in the leagues. So everyone knows in the NFL, it's a closed league. There's 32 teams. This creates basically a an advantage from a supply and demand perspective. There's only 32 teams. Half of them are probably like never going to go up for sale, and the other half or two-thirds of them will rarely or do never go up for sale. So there's only been a few sales over the last few years. It creates this process where there's more bidders than there are teams for sale, and with higher demand and less supply, the price of these assets go up. So it's a fixed amount of teams. They're not going to be expanding, et cetera. The Premier League is different. So there's 20 teams, and three teams are at the risk of relegation each season to the lower league, which is a championship. So this is promotion and relegation that you hear people talk about all the time. So Manchester United is not really in this category, if we're being honest, because they spend a bunch of money, they have a bunch of good players, they're not going to get relegated. But if you do buy other teams, you can move up and you can move down. So there's a chance that you lose some of that money. And that's important because of the economics of the league. So the NFL has revenue sharing. All national revenue is divided equally between all 32 teams. So when they sign that deal with Amazon, when they sign the deal with Fox, when they sign the deal with CBS, when they sign the deals with ESPN, et cetera, that money is divided between all of the teams and split up. There's a local revenue component, some sponsorship, stuff like that, but most of it is national revenue, and that's what really sets the salary cap. So that's all split up evenly from a revenue per sharing perspective. In the Premier League, it's different. There's no revenue sharing specifically. So a portion of the media revenue is divided, but it's based on merit, right? So better teams make more money. The teams that aren't as good make less money. And teams that are relegated to the championship earn less in media deals also. So if you move up, you get a big bump in pay. If you move down a league, you get a tremendous drop in pay. So there's this incentive, obviously, to stay in the top league. But if you buy a team and you end up going downward, you can lose a lot of money. And then also on their actual revenue side, the annual value of the media deals in the NFL is like 10 or 11 billion. And if we're using just kind of firm numbers here, and the Premier League side would be about half of that. So we'll call it 5 billion. So 5 billion versus 10 billion. And then from a player cost perspective, I actually think this is the biggest detriment to buying a Premier League club. Because if you look at what we've seen on the player cost side, the NFL has a salary cap at $225 million. No one can spend above that. So the teams are capped at the amount of money that they can spend. This helps manage some of the expectations around player salaries. It helps the growth and longevity of the league. And then if you look at the Premier League side, it's like semi-fixed, we'll call it. There's financial fair play rules in place, which basically just make sure a team can't outspend their means. But there's not a true salary cap for players. And that's important because Premier League teams are spending a shit ton of money. They spent $3.4 billion on transfers during the 2022-23 season, which is obviously a tremendous amount of money. It's more money than is being spent in 
you know, on a per player basis in the NFL, et cetera. The NFL is a more lucrative league. So some of the salaries are bigger and stuff like that. But from a strictly salary perspective, it's much more manageable. And I guess actually the real way to put this is that you can project what these salaries are going to be and you have a fair degree of certainty around what they're going to look like versus the Premier League, not so much. And the reason for that is quite simple. The ownership structure in European football, European soccer has changed dramatically over the year. We've seen these oil-rich Gulf states buy clubs like Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, Newcastle United, etc. And I think what we're seeing from an economic perspective, an investor perspective, at least what I've been told and what I've been seeing, is that some of these teams want out. Fenway Sports Group said they're going to sell theirs. Manchester United is now up for sale too. Again, so you know, maybe they don't end up selling, maybe they do end up selling. But my point is simple. That from a future projection of earnings standpoint, it's much easier to dictate what the future is going to look like from an NFL perspective than it is from a Premier League perspective. So to valuation, for people that don't know, sports assets are typically valued around six times revenue. So you take the amount of money or revenue that a team earns in a single year, so one calendar year, and you multiply it by six. That's about where the team should trade. Again, if you think it is a league that is not growing or going down, we'll say the NHL. I don't want to take a shot at them, but it's the truth. Those teams would trade at like a five times multiple maybe, right? So a little bit less value based on growth. It's the same way you would value a traditional asset in the stock market or so on. If the league is growing, like the MLS or something like that, maybe they get valued at a 10 times multiple, which would be relatively high, but it's based off of growth of revenues and so forth. People are, are interested in buying them, so they're willing to pay a higher price. The NFL is somewhere in between that. We'll call it like seven to eight. And the Premier League is, is probably a little bit lower than that based off of all the things we just talked about. Now, the interesting part here is that the commanders in 2021, 2022 made $544 million and were valued at $5.6 billion, which was the sixth largest valuation in the NFL. And that's a 10 times revenue multiple. It's obviously a tremendous price increase from the $750 million Dan Snyder paid for the team in 1999, but you get the point. That's a lot of money. And now Dan Snyder and other reports are saying that he's looking for $7 billion. I don't think he's going to get $7 billion. There's a real estate component to this. The people that buy the team have to build new facilities. The stadium is crumbling. So look, there's more stuff at play here, and I just don't think he's going to get $7 plus billion. Maybe someone like Jeff Bezos comes in and just really doesn't care and goes crazy and outbids someone. But $7 billion based on the value of the actual asset would not really be a smart buy. I mean, like, yeah, if you hold the asset for 20 years, you're going to make your money and it's fine. But the people buying these teams typically, right, we, we've seen some people like Steve Ballmer just drastically overpaid. They literally call it the Ballmer bump. He just overpaid so much. But traditionally, the people that are buying these teams are valuing the teams like a financial asset. And they're, they know how much cash is coming in and they know what the team should be valued at and future revenues, et cetera. So there's a few different people that are looking at the team. Jeff Bezos is obviously one of them. Uh, Josh Harris led group, who's the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. He has Magic Johnson in his group. They were heavily involved in the Denver Broncos purchased also. They're bidding. Tillman Fertitta is leading a group. He's the owner of the Houston Rockets and he's made a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars on casinos and restaurants. So a few different bidders involved here. The other side of this, Manchester United is reportedly looking for someone around $7 billion too. Now, I don't want to get into all the details around the ownership group, but the easiest way to put it is that Manchester United fans don't like them. They don't invest in the team. They take a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of money off the table in the form of dividends. 
and even management salaries. So they're making millions and millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars from dividends and, and uh, so forth. And the team was underperforming, actually, before at the beginning of this year, they underperformed drastically to start the year and fans were rioting. But outside of that, there's a few different people that are doing it. There's Qatari royal family who is looking to buy the team at a $6.2 billion valuation. Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who's a British billionaire, was also at $6.2 billion. There's a Finnish entrepreneur who I don't think we know how much he actually bid yet. But again, it's it's a little bit lower than the teams or the owners the Glazer family were looking to get. I think that no one knows what kind of certainty we're going to see here from a sales perspective because both of the ownership groups are, are kind of out there. Like people just don't know what they're thinking. The Glazer family, no one really has direct communication with. And it's the same with Dan Snyder. He's currently actually being punished by the NFL. His wife is running the team. So we just don't know. My guess is that one, if not both of the teams will end up selling. These are just large, large, large sums of money. And look, there's incentive to sell too, right? The NFL just locked up their media rights deal for the next decade. Premier League has all these issues going on with other clubs coming in and the spending is going crazy. So if you're going to sell, you're probably going to do it soon because it doesn't make sense like the NBA, for example. You don't really want to sell a team right now because the new media deals are about to kick in and the valuations are going to go much, much, much higher. So you're probably leaving some money on the table, which is why I talked about the Phoenix Suns and I was so surprised that they ended up selling because it just didn't make sense from a timing perspective. Obviously, there were some other things going on there too with lawsuits and other things that might have made the decision a little bit easier to get out of there. But at the end of the day, the valuation is going to increase. So I'll be surprised if neither of these teams sell. But again, the owners are wild cards. We don't really know what's going to happen. Time will tell. All right, that's it for today. I appreciate you guys listening to this. I appreciate you watching it. As always, please share this with your friends. Subscribe to the channels. Help support me. And I will continue making good content about the business and money behind sports. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.